Okay, so let's get into Matthew chapter 14. We have been cruising through the book of Matthew. Last week we did the parables, the kingdom parables, and then this week we're going to get into some stories about um, some pretty amazing stuff that Jesus did. If you think what Jesus has done so far is amazing, healing the sick, that's been the primary focus. He goes into a town and the sick come out because they hear this guy's in town who when he prays and, or touches people, they get well. So they come out and he gathers crowds because of that. That will gather a crowd. I mean, if you walk out right now in the middle of Kernersville and every person you pray for is miraculously healed, people, even atheists, are going to come out to see what in the world is going on. This creates a great thing and a bad thing all at the same time. We've seen Jesus kind of reacting to the crowds and trying to sift through, like to, to drive away those who are just coming because they don't want him, they just want a, a show. And those people are walking away offended because he says crazy things on purpose. And he veils the truth in these stories, these parables, so that only those who really are seeking will understand, right? And at the same time, he's drawing real disciples to himself, right? And so now he, this, this kind of crowd is gathered, this notoriety is gathered, and it's beginning to seriously offend not only the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day, but he's also so popular that he's now making Herod nervous because people are calling him the Messiah, the coming king of the Jews. And Herod is like, wait a minute. So we have this little story about the end of John the Baptist's life. John the Baptist is uh, not afraid to speak his mind, right? He says the truth. And he had spoken out against Herod, who had divorced his wife and married his niece named Herodias. That's right. Divorced his wife to marry his niece. Okay? He had spoken out about that multiple times, made them mad, made very powerful people upset. He had embarrassed them publicly. One too many Facebook posts. And off to prison he goes. Herodias wanted John dead, and she used her daughter to manipulate Herod into beheading John the Baptist. It's a very creepy story if you were going to read it. In the middle of that, and so now Herod sees Jesus doing these, these amazing miracles, and he thinks in his paranoia that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. John the Baptist has come back to haunt me, and he's doing these miracles, and he, so now he wants Jesus dead. And so what Jesus decides, it's not time for me to die yet. So he leaves town, and he goes into Gentile territory, and that's what leads to this first story. Because people find out. They find out. Jesus is in this like hidden away place in the desert, right? Just waiting for his time to come, and people find out where he is, and they leave their towns, and we get almost like somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 people. So just try to picture 10,000 people. That's a lot of people, even by today's standards. And they've all crowded out to see Jesus, and this is what happens. This is Matthew 14. 13 to 21, he says, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew, heard this being, heard the story about John the Baptist. He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. 
But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Isn't that great? And God, ever have God tell you to do something that's impossible? Verse 17, they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and take the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So probably 10,000 plus people, depending on how many kids they had, right? So Jesus goes in this desert area on the northern corner of the Sea of Galilee, but people in the nearby towns find out. So in the evening, they didn't have food for him. This was not like a planned conference where you paid a fee and they provided a box lunch for you. You're out in the desert, and he's like, we have to feed these people, send them back into the towns. They could have gone, but Jesus has an idea. He wastes no opportunity. And he essentially questions them, like, why do you think they have to go into town to eat? That's an assumption you're making based on what you see naturally, not based on what the truth is. The truth is Jesus is standing right there. And he says, okay, so bring me this paltry amount of food, barely enough to feed a child. Bring it to me, and then he blesses it. And what does he do? He hands that little paltry, it still looks like nothing. And he hands it to the disciples, and they reach in and they give it to the first person, reach in, give it to the second person, whether, why, there's, why is there still stuff in here? And they just go like this until 10,000 people have been fed. Not just a snack, but fed to the point where they are satisfied, they are full. They're all sitting there going, oh, I can't stuff any more in. Oh, loosening their belts, belts. They're so full of loaves and fishes. So first, he simply tells them to feed the people, knowing it would require a miracle. That's verse 16. They tell him it's impossible. Imagine telling Jesus that's impossible. That's their first mistake. Jesus, apparently you have not been informed. We don't have enough food to go around. He was like, oh, I had no idea. Well, by all means. No, he says he already knows. And then he demonstrates what he wanted them to do, and then he has them actually do it. He says, give me what you have. He blesses it, what, 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 what they should have done. And then he gives it to them, and he says, now I want you to go give it out. This is discipleship, right? I think it's interesting. I don't think it's a coincidence that they had 12 disciples and there were 12 baskets left over. I think that's part of his point. Jesus' point is not to do another miracle and impress the crowd. The crowd was already impressed. That's why they were there. They didn't need him to do more miracles. He had spent the whole day healing people. Jesus was making a point to his disciples and to us that this is about you. I'm making a point about you and what I've called you to, to do. This is about the disciples learning a lesson from Jesus. I think it's actually the same lesson as the next miracle. So before we make a bunch of application here, let's move on to the next one where Jesus walks on water. If you weren't already impressed, how about we defy the laws of physics? Matthew 14, 22 to 27 says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side 
So basically there, if you can look at a map, that little, there's a little bump at the top corner of the Sea of Galilee. They cut across it, okay? And Jesus, at verse 23, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way away from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. Just a casual sentence. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, as one would be, and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. So do you remember in chapter 8, there's a similar story. So there's a storm, they're in a boat, they're in the storm. Might have even been the same boat. In the storm, Jesus is sleeping in the back. They're freaking out. Ah, right, we're all going to die. And they get upset at Jesus because he's slacking in the back of the boat, by their estimation, sleeping. And they wake him up. We're all going to die like he didn't know, like he need, didn't have this information. And then he speaks to this. He says, oh, you have little faith. And he speaks to the storm. The, the waves come down. And he teaches them a lesson. Well, here we are again. The disciples are in a boat, in the sea, there's a storm, and they're freaking out. But what's different this time? What's different this time is Jesus is not in the boat. He's way over there on land having a little, I don't know, powwow by himself. I mean, I have a theory. I think Jesus knew the storm was coming, and he sent them into it. That's my theory, but it's not there in the text. Because Jesus doesn't mind sending us into a storm because he's not worried about storms he doesn't have the same perspective on storms that we have we find them troublesome he does not so here and so so what happened so they're right to freak out don't be harsh on them if you are in a crisis without jesus you are in trouble and you have reason to fear but if you're in a storm with jesus well that's a whole different story right Jesus is all the difference. And so when Peter sees Jesus walking on the water, it's not just a kind of foolish, suddenly he has faith thing. It's we're, we've, we're saved. We're rescued. There he is. The missing piece to this problem is Jesus. And Peter, amazingly, Peter is the best at having like all nearly simultaneous moments of great triumph and great failure, like the rest of us. Sometimes my greatest moment is immediately followed by my worst or immediately preceded by my worst. Peter's no different. He, he says, can I come out? I just want to come see you. I don't want to wait for you to walk here. He, he says, yeah, come on. And Peter just jumps out there. And he's doing great. I mean, can you imagine stepping out into a storm like that and finding solid ground beneath your feet and you're walking along through this thing and you're just looking at Jesus. I can't believe he's here to rescue us. And then what happens, the storm picks up a little and Peter starts going, wait a second. I'm a little farther from the boat than I'm comfortable with. I'm a little too far from Jesus. He's way over there. I'm in between. I'm the farthest, I'm past the point of no return, but I can't grab onto Jesus. It's that panic, right? And then he starts to sink. We know the story. 
he starts to sink because he takes his eyes off of Jesus and says he put his eyes on the waves and he was intimidated. And Jesus has to get up to him and pull him up out of the water and save his life. And he says, you have little faith. I love that. Like what kind of faith scale is Jesus operating on? Right? You, you, you ever, like, he, I just walked on water. That's, that's me. If I'm Peter, I'm like, hang on a second. I got like 20 yards walking on water, man. And you're like, you have little faith. Like how much faith do I have to have to have big faith? Well, that's, you'd have to be Jesus, I think, at that point. You have little faith. God, God is not impressed with you. Did you know that? He loves you. But it's not like you're so amazing, he's like, wow, okay, now I'll, in, I'll give you this power, right? Peter walks on water, and Jesus says, you have little faith. So the difference here is that Jesus was not in the boat. And then, of course, when Jesus is in the boat, when he climbs in with Peter, what happens? Immediately the wind and the waves die down. Problem solved. Peter illustrates for us that, what, that the difference here is Jesus, is where his eyes are. The difference is not Peter and even in his faith. I say to you all the time, it's not the quality or the strength of your faith that's important. It's the object of your faith. It's not how much you're feeling it or not feeling it. When you lay hands on the sick, it's not anything to do with you and your awesomeness or whether or not you just know they're going to get healed or not. It's got everything to do with who you're looking at. Who's the source? Is it you? Because if it's you, you have no hope. If it's Jesus, you have all the power in the universe. That's the difference. And Peter demonstrates this, gives us so many centuries later an object lesson of what it means to walk by faith. So if you read John's account of these events in John chapter 6, you'll see something really interesting, which is that in the middle of this, one of the the, the main teachings that Jesus was teaching out in the desert was that he is the bread of life. And anybody who comes to him who hungers will never thirst. Right? And he's not, he's not teaching that we should, Christians are cannibals. That was actually, a, we were, wrote the Romans, one of the things Romans, Rome accused us of back in those days was being cannibals because of stuff like this. What Jesus is saying, he's talking about spiritual hunger, Right? You have a hunger, you were made with a hole, a hunger inside of you that, is, can, that you can try to satisfy in a hundred different ways, and it may kind of scratch the itch for a moment, but you come, you're hunger again immediately. That's what sin does. Sin promises to fill your belly, to fill that hunger, and it satisfies it for a moment, and you're immediately hungry, and it's like eating a salad. Such a great theory. You can put kale or whatever weird mess you want to put in your salad. <laughs> but we all know the truth is an hour later, what are you going to be doing? You're going to be picking through your cupboard looking for something else to eat. So sin equals salad. That's what I'm telling. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I took it too far. Now I've lost all credibility, all right? You get the point, right? This is the promise of sin is it doesn't satisfy you. Jesus says, I'm the bread. I'm the one that will satisfy you. And John puts that together. He goes, oh, so he said that, and then he fed 10,000 people himself with little bits of bread. This is the lesson of the feeding miracle 
and the walking on the water miracle, which is Jesus is the bread, not the giver of bread. He may give you bread. He may solve your problems, but that's not the point of him solving your problems. The point of him solving your problems is to tell you, I am your solution, right? I am the bread. So if you look at the feeding of the 10,000, you can give and give and give and give, and he will always supply. Every time you reach in, needing something to give, if you're connected to Jesus, there'll always be something in the basket because he's your supply, not you. This has never been more applicable than right now because everybody in this room, I, one assumption I can make, which is you've been giving and giving and giving and giving for a year at least, a year and a half, and you're tired and you're not sure how much more you got in the tank. Maybe you got kids, maybe you got it. Whatever your life thing is, whatever you got going on, it's hard. <laughs> That's a universal truth. And the fact is, if you stand, try to stand up to that and fill that need in your life with just you, out of your own power, you are in trouble. And maybe that's the lesson of COVID, is that we do not have an endless supply in and of ourselves, but in Christ we do. And so it's what basket are you pulling out of? Or another way to look at it is Jesus in the boat with you or not? Jesus is not just the one who calms the storm. It's that he has... He's not even concerned about the storm. If you're with him, you don't need storm or not. It's like, I don't, if Jesus is in the boat, you don't even care if the storm keeps going and the wind dies or doesn't die. Because you're just with Jesus. Jesus was happy in chapter 8 to sleep through the storm. The only reason he got up and calmed the storm was because the disciples were freaking out. He just wanted a nap. I think it's amazing and don't have really time, but it's, I encourage you to read it. Uh, this happened again in Matthew chapter 15, 32 to 39. It's a different moment, slightly different circumstances where they had about 4,000, so probably 8,000 or so probably about the same amount of people out in a desolate place again. But this time they were so hungry. People had been there three days and hadn't eaten. They were so wanting to be near Jesus that they had not eaten. And they said, well, we should send them back to town. And Jesus like, no, if we, I'm afraid they'll faint. They won't even make it. They, they'll pass out on the way back, and it's not safe for them to just go back. Let's feed them again. And it's the same thing again. They're like, well, we only have like, you know, it's like, oh, hello, McFly, right? What's wrong with you? Well, what's wrong with them is the same thing that's wrong with us, is as soon as you get to another crisis, God shows up for you in this miraculous way, and then you have this another crisis. It might be the exact same boat in the exact same water in the exact same storm you've been in a hundred times, and God's rescue a hundred times, and what do you do? You throw your hands up, and you start running around in a circle, panicking, running into stuff. Where's God? This is what we do. So it gives me comfort that those verses are in the Bible. So even right after that, Jesus starts teaching them about, he says, 
to them, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. I don't even know why. I think the reason Matthew put that in there, if you read ahead, is just to show how knuckleheaded they were. Because Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And they're so stuck on this whole bread of life metaphor and feeding the 5,000 metaphor. that They're like, yeah, yeah, and they just start talking about that. And he's like, no. And he says, what's wrong with you? Almost literally, says, what? Are you dumb? What's wrong? I'm not even talking about that right now. I'm trying to talk about the leaven of the Pharisees, this legalism thing. And he's just like, you can see Jesus standing there like, what? This guy's not listening. Why are you this way? And this is me. It comforts me to see that because I miss the point all the time. So here's the point. Whatever the storm or problem you're facing or are about to face, because you're in one of those categories, you're in the middle of a storm, you just got out of a storm, or you're about to go into a new, another one. Whatever that is, the task for you is not to stare at the problem in an attempt to solve it. You ever find yourself doing that? Just working over some problem in your head, just staring at it. If I stare at it hard enough, <laughs> it'll be solved. Caught in double-mindedness. You got a decision to make and no options are good ones. Or you don't have enough of a ability to predict the future to know which one's the right decision. And you're kicking yourself because you can't know the future. Well, congratulations. God didn't give you that ability. You're a human. You don't know how the storm's going to get fixed. You're doing the wrong thing. You're looking at the wrong thing. The task for you is just to remind yourself that Jesus is in the boat with you. Those disciples were able to give and give and give bread to the hungry, not because they were performing the miracles, but because Jesus had blessed it. The supply of their ministry was Jesus. I mean, it had to have been just dumbfounding. And I feel that way all the time. Don't you feel that way? Like, how is this working? How is my life not a complete train wreck? How did, in the world did I get to marry Heather Cotton? Can anyone explain this to me? She can't. She's dumbfounded too. Maybe more negatively dumbfounded than me. But don't you ever feel like, what? How did I end up here? How's, how am I still alive? How did I live this long? How, like, none of this makes sense. It's just like those disciples walking around, the next person, like, all right, I'm racing in this weird basket that Jesus blessed you know, you're looking underneath it, you know, just, you know, is David Copperfield going to pop out somewhere? You know, you're just, nobody knows who David Copperfield is anymore. That's an old guy, old magician. You, you, she knows. All right. A magician who used to like walk through walls and pop out of one place and into another. But they're looking at it like, how is, I'm reaching in and there's more stuff there. And this is how it's supposed to be. It's not a failure that you don't, you haven't stored up everything you need that you can predict you're going to have enough tomorrow. It's just the way Jesus designed it. So if you're a Christian, Jesus is not just in the boat with you, it, with you. He's in you. That's the truth. 
He's not sometimes there and other times not. This is what happened at Pentecost, is Jesus now doesn't have to be in the boat with you and everywhere at the same time because he can be now through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fills you. That's what Paul's, Paul's trying to get across, this idea of you're unified with Christ. That's what he's trying to say. Is like, Jesus Christ is in you. And so where you go, he goes. All the time. There's never a moment when you're in the boat by yourself, ever. And if you're not a follower of Christ, then you never have him with you. You are hosed. You are in trouble. You are not up to the task and you are headed towards destruction no matter what you try to do to stop it. You have no power. You cannot even feed yourself, much less others. This is your life. But in Christ, he is in you, and you have hope in him. You've been unified with Christ. This is what Heidi's word meant earlier. Jesus doesn't just love you. He doesn't just show you how to love. That's what the world thinks about Jesus. Jesus was a good man who did good things and he showed the world how to love through self-sacrifice and wise teachings. Maybe he was a great prophet. He's an example of a great and good human being. He is a model to look up to. That is not what Jesus is. He is not a moral example of you to live up to. He is in you living through. So God is love, meaning it's his love through you. If you need to know, if you're like, ah, there's this person i got to love. Maybe this is the answer to how me and Heather ended up together. <laughs> it's the love of Christ through her to me. Because who could, remember, I'll, I'll stop. <laughs> But you see, this is the thing. Like, if you're struggling to love somebody, you've got to tap into the God is love. He is in you, and it's his love. He, is, he isn't just the giver of bread. He is the bread. He isn't just the giver of love. He is love. He's not just the giver of mercy. He is mercy. He's not just the giver of forgiveness. He is forgiveness. If you're struggling to forgive somebody, it's because you have not yet plugged into the forgiveness of Christ for you. And when you see that in its fullness, it so blows your mind that you will forgive anybody for anything. This is the secret of Christianity, is it's not you. The question is not, are you up to the task? Can you calm the storm? Can you navigate the storm? Is your boat strong enough? Have you prepared well enough? Did you see this coming? You should have seen this coming. Why didn't you see this coming? You made such a dumb decision. I can't believe you got on this boat and got out in the middle of the sea. You have been fishermen your entire life. You know better than to get in a boat and go out in the middle of the water at a time like this, at this time of day. You knew you would get... Why weren't you paying attention? That is not the voice of Christ. The voice of Christ is, I'm, I'm in the boat. Just stop it. Calm down. Simmer down. Do you want me to stop the waves or not? Because I could go either way. You're going to be fine either way. This is what walking by the Spirit looks like. I think if I were to define what Paul means by walking by the Spirit and not according to the flesh, this is what it looks like. It looks like being continually dumbfounded by how in the world this is working. 
not knowing what the plan is, not knowing what's going to happen, not knowing how it's going to get fixed, not knowing how the storm, how you're going to get through it and survive it. But every time you reach in to your basket, there's power there, there's life there, there's love there, there's forgiveness there, there's mercy there. Whatever you need to do what God's called you to do, he told you to go that way, so you went that way. And then you went that way and it got hard. Welcome to being a disciple. This is the story. He tells you to go somewhere. You can assume it's not going to be easy. That's not what he does. He goes the narrow way. He goes the hard way. He calls us into storms through them because he wants to show us what it's like for him to be in the boat. He says, feed these people. You're like, I can't feed these people. This is what it's like to be a pastor. If you all want to be a pastor, I hope I'm not discouraging you. But it's just continual confusion. We have to make a decision. This, decision A or decision B. They're both bad. Make one. I don't know. It doesn't matter. If Christ is in the boat, you can make the worst decision, and he's going to bless it. People ask me, how did you get through the past year? I don't know. I think we did maybe 50-50 good decisions, bad decisions. God blessed all of it. Blessed it so much, I couldn't tell you which were the right decisions and which were the wrong ones. I have no measurement that's reliable to tell me if we were smart or dumb. Because he blessed all of it. This is what it's like to have Jesus in the boat. This is what it means to walk by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit looks like a lot of like these disciples handing out food and wondering how in the world every time they reach in there's more to give out. Walking by the Spirit looks like a bunch of scared disciples in a sinking boat seeing Jesus appear in the mist and knowing that everything's going to be okay. After he says, it's me. <laughs> Don't be afraid. Oh, okay. So if you're wondering if you have enough gas in the tank to take on the challenges you're facing right now, you don't. I don't know if i got enough gas in the tank. You don't. Stop, stop asking that question. Because you don't. But Jesus most certainly does. Your ability to do the next day or the next hour is dependent on your connectedness to Jesus. And if you want to know how to do that, half of y'all know what I'm going to say. Word, prayer, fellowship. It ain't complicated. Get in the Word, learn to pray, and get around other Christians. It's not like you stand there in your room by yourself and go, connectedness to Jesus. Connect with Jesus. You just are. You just are. It's like a tree. Heather's dad, my wonderful father-in-law, always says I'm stealing it from him. It's like a tree trying to bear fruit. It's like an apple tree going, Apples! Apple! Another apple! Apple! <laughs> and it's not how tre apple trees make apples. They just make them effortlessly. This is what bearing fruit looks like. You just learn to pray, learn to talk to him, learn to hear from him in his word. Do that consistently and work at it until you get good at it and fellowship with other believers. That's how you get connected to Jesus. So to put it another way more negatively, this way we can end on a negative note, <laughs> if you're stressed or hurried 
or worried, afraid, angry, bitter, whatever, it's likely because you've forgotten that Christ is with you, that he's in the boat. And the answer is not to try not to be those things. The more you try not to be angry, the angrier you get because you're getting angry. Now you're angry because you lost your temper and you're angry at yourself, right? It's just a horrible thing. Just all those negative emotions work that way. The answer is just to look at him. Be like Peter and don't be like Peter. Be like Peter in part A of the story, not like Peter in part B of the story, which was moments later, right? Look at Jesus. So God is love is absolutely right. It's a great intro to my sermon, Heidi. Thanks for that. He doesn't just love you, he is love. Why don't we pray together? If you're here in the room, why don't you stand up? Get your uh, blood flowing again. I just want to pray for us. Lord, we repent for acting like you're not in the boat for acting like you have called, asked us to do something impossible and that you won't supply what we need to do it. God, we, we ask you to help us with this. We confess that we are very much the same as your disciples then. We're easily scared easily sent into a panic. It's easy for us to forget. We're slow to learn. Slow to remember all the times when you've met us in the past. But God, we don't want to be that way. So Holy Spirit, I ask you to just stir up in us our remembrance of who it is we're with. Make us people who are laser-focused on Jesus as, the, as our provider, as our solution, as our source, that we will be people that walk in the Spirit, not according to the flesh, who see the storm through the lens and through the eyes of Jesus himself. That when we look at the things that are coming at us or the things we're in the middle of, that we would look at them like he looks at them, which is a lack of concern because he knows he has power over it. God, I pray for those of us who have obeyed you and it sent them into trouble and who have, on some level in their hearts, decided that maybe they shouldn't be so quick to follow you. That maybe you let them down because you sent them in a direction, you sent them right into the middle of a storm. God, I pray that you would renew their faith God, they would identify with these disciples and that they would also see that when you say I'm in the boat with you, you mean it. God, help us to believe that you're enough and you're all we need. And God, I pray too just for some testimonies about storms being miraculously quieted. God, whether it's marriages who are in a storm or health problems, 
financial problems, all these different storms that we all go through, rebellious children, whatever it is. God, I pray that you would rise up in the boat and that you would speak peace to the storm. God, we need you to make this point to us so over and over and over again. But God, I pray that you would demonstrate this truth, that you would remind us that you're in a boat with us by calming the storm. We confess that we are not up to the task. We don't have enough gas in the tank, and we are afraid. So Lord, I pray that you would bring peace. God, restore marriages. Restore hope. God, I pray that you would cure depression in this church. God, that you would cure panic attacks, anxiety, fear, demonic oppression cancer and heart disease and diabetes and all these things, God. God, I pray that it would be like Jesus just walking through us, just like he walked through that crowd. That everything he touches would be restored. And I pray that people would see and, and report that the kingdom of God is at hand because of what you do through us. And God, I pray that you do it in such a way that we can claim no credit God, just like those disciples reaching in and wondering how in the world there's more food in there and probably shrugging their shoulders at everybody they fed like, I don't understand this. God, I pray that that would be how we are. That when you move through your church miraculously and revive your church, God, I pray that it would be like we're just standing here and it's incidental that we happen to be the ones experiencing it. And we shrug our shoulders and just go, God's in the boat with us. God, help us to be humble that way. Because I believe you're going to do great things in this church. You've already done great things, and you will continue to do so. God, I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.